Judges 1, 22 through 26, recapturing Bethel. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz, and that is its name to this day. Now, in this text, it looks like from the surface that the Israelites are doing well. God has delivered the Israelites from Egypt. And finally, after a major hiccup, the Israelites had crossed over into the promised land. But, you know, it didn't happen all at once. There were ups, there were downs. And, you know, the reality is, Anna kind of touched on it, but the Christian life is not always up. There are ups and there are downs, and sometimes there's more downs, and then there's ups. And, you know, uh, for all the Job, you read the book of Job, there's a lot of Job... 1 to 21 to 41 but there's always a 42 yeah. chapter 42 the Lord showed up and delivered him and, and things went better but you know the reality is the Christian life is a fight and uh, for those of y'all that may not be where you need to be with God or you've never given your life to the Lord we're not going to sugarcoat everything and tell you hey become a Christian and your life is going to be wonderful it's not but your life will be meaningful and your life will have purpose because God created you on purpose for a purpose. But I will warn you beforehand that the Christian life is a fight. But it's a fight worth fighting. It's a battle worth going into. And it's a battle that's already been determined from the outset. As long as we continue, don't quit and remain steadfast, we will experience the victories of God in our life, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our communities. Amen? Anyway... The, for the Israelites, they finally came into the promised land, because not because they were faithful, but because God was faithful. And Moses, uh, uh, to give you a recap, had led the Israelites out of Egypt and into the wilderness. Due to their unwillingness to possess the promises of God the first time around, they spent uh, a lot of time in the wilderness, almost 40 years, if not 40 years to the day. And the next generation of Israelites, Israelites were the ones that crossed over the Jordan River to take possession of what God had promised and was now delivering to them. The one who eventually led them over was a man by the name of Joshua. Under his leadership, the Israelites began to take territory and they began to parcel out the land to the tribes. Joshua led them through the land for 30 years and now we have in the book of Judges, in this book, in this text, a record of what the people of God did after Joshua passed. Now this brings us up to speed. As I said before, in this text, on the surface, it appears like the Israelites are doing well. Now, we have to study the circumstances a little bit more in depth to really find out whether or not that is the case. So first point we're going to look at this morning is God's word to the people. And again, if we were to read this, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel, verse 24. The spies saw a man coming out of the city, verse 25. Yes, I'm, I'm just kind of, you can read this along as I highlight certain things. He showed them the city, uh, uh, the man showed him the city, struck the city, and the man went to a land and built the city and called its name Luz. So when God gave the Israelites possession of the land of Canaan, the land was not vacant. It wasn't empty. It's kind of like if you were to buy a house and you go to the house and you realize that there are people in that house and they're not aware of the fact that that house belongs to you. 
and they're going to fight you every step of the way that that house belongs to you, whether legally it belongs to you or not. They're trespassers who don't want to acknowledge that they're trespassers. So in the land of Canaan, there were Canaanites living on the land, and God gave the people of God who were taking possession of the land that was the Lord's, and God was giving to them. He, was give, he gave them directions. First of all, uh, on this, uh, 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 to these people, he gave them directions on two fronts. First of all, they were given the land of Canaan. They had a part to play. God told them that even though they owned the land because he gave it to them, they were going to have to take possession of the land. All right? It's kind of like, I can give you a piece of land, let's say up in the hill country, but that land is yours, but you can own that all your life and never actually go physically live on that land. And God was saying, I'm giving you the land, I'm giving you the title deed, it's good between me and you, but you need to go take possession of the land. You actually need to go walk the land, build on the land, move the enemy off the land. Exodus 6, 2 through 8, the Bible says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. So, first of all, he was, they were given possession of the land, but second of all, God told the Israelites not simply to take it, but he also instructed them on how to take possession of the land. Exodus 34, 11 through 16, the Lord said, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you. These are the Canaanites, the different tribes of the Canaanites that were in the land. The Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break pillars and cut down their ashram. In other words, you shall destroy their gods. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. By the way, the jealousy of God is not the same as man's jealousy. All right? Lest you, that's, a, that's a topic for another message. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. In other words, the whole purpose of what God was telling him is, don't just go in and take possession of the land, but tear down the strongholds in the land, because if you don't tear down the strongholds in the land, you'll start to participate in the very same things that they're doing, and nothing has changed. Deuteronomy 12, 29 through 32, when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations who you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods that I also may do the same? I'm just going to stop here for a minute. I'm going to meddle a little bit. Listen, as Christians, we have the spirit of the living God inside of us. The best search engine in the universe is the Spirit of God. You think Google's good? Ask the Holy Spirit. He knows everything. But yet you still have Christians dabbling with uh, astrology, 
dabbling with uh, uh, mediums, going to spiritualists, and, and, and playing around with the best that the world has to offer, not realizing that what it's going to do is ensnare you to the things of the world. You have so much better that is uh, uh, made available to you in Christ. The purpose of giving you uh, uh, the opportunity to come before the Lord and, and, and keeping you, God giving instructions not to go and whore after the things of the world is not because God's jealous in the sense that, oh, he can't handle it. It's really bottom. He's trying to protect us. He's trying to keep us pure and undefiled and uh, not riddled by the enemy's uh, uh, attacks, by the enemy's sway, by the enemy. There is an enemy, by the way. And he comes but to steal, kill, and destroy. My point is, Bobby was talking to Christians, and we're talking to Christians as well. If you're not a Christian yet, we want to invite you to become one somewhere down the road. If you're not living wholeheartedly for God, then you really don't understand what it means to be a Christian. But the reality is, in order to live a victorious Christian life, you can't be half out and half in, uh, a little bit out and almost all the way in. The only way it works is when you're all in. And if you're going to be all in, you can't be dabbling in, uh, 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 what do you call it, psychic uh, uh, mediums, you can't be dabbling in yoga, you can't be dabbling in new age practices, you can't be dabbling in all that stuff. Because it's going to ensnare your soul. Let me get back. All right. You shall, uh, how did these nations serve their gods? Verse 31. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For even they even burned their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. So the instructions upon taking the land were first, not just to move the enemy off the land, but to destroy their idolatrous system of worship. Then they were told to do all that God commanded them. All right? So the second point we're looking at is what did the, actually, the people do, the actions of the people. In, in our text again, the Bible says the spies of the tribe saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, please show us a way into the city, and we'll deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his family go. Now, while on the surface it appears that they did what they were told, what they actually did was a violation of what God had spoken them to do. In Deuteronomy 7, 23-24, it says, But the Lord your God will give them over to you, talking about the people of the Lamb, and of the land that they are dispossessing, and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. So our text shows us that the Israelites decided that they would get themselves an inside man, and in doing so, they would make their job of taking the city a lot easier. They, they, in, in their mind, they were using human logic instead of obeying God. They didn't look at it as we weren't obeying God. They just looked at it as, why don't we just make this a little bit easier, right? So they asked this man who was an inhabitant of the city, who was an inhabitant of the tribe they were supposed to dispossess and they were supposed to destroy. They asked this man to get into a partnership with him. 
And if he got into partnership with him, they would let this man and his family go. Seeing that his, this man probably thought to himself that if I don't partner with the Israelites, my family and myself are going to die, it seems like a pretty good offer to me. And so the man proceeds to show them the way into the defended city, and he was left to go his way. So the Israelites, with this inside information, proceeded to take the city, and everything now seemed on the surface as if things were really going their way. Uh, but the reality is, what we're going to find is that even though the Israelites took the city, the strongholds remained in the land. We'll get back to that in a minute. But before we do that, I want to insert something here from Israel's history that will help us as we move forward, okay? So um, when the Israelites were on the journey the first time into the Promised Land, they were confronted by a man by the name, uh, actually this was the second time around. They were confronted by a, 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 a Balak who was of the tribe of Moab. And in Numbers 22, 40 through 40, uh, 22, 4 through 6, the Bible says, Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Baor, at Pathor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth. They're dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. If you read the account, you find that Balaam was not able to curse the Israelites. And as a result, he could not collect his promised reward, and the king of Moab appeared to be up a creek without a paddle. However, Balaam, who was not just gifted uh, uh, prophetically, he was also pretty sneaky. So Balaam found a way to collect his fee, by giving the king of Moab a plan on how to get the Israelites to curse themselves. In Numbers 25, 1 through 3, it says, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So in other words, what happened is uh, the Moab council got together, and they said, we're in trouble. Balaam can't curse him. What are we going to do? But Balaam's given us some advice. And so they got with the, the, the council, and they said, we need to let our young people, our young unmarried uh, uh, women, go over there and tempt the men into some type of illicit relationship. And then once they come and get involved with these women, then they will follow them wherever the women go, and the women would lead them to a sacrifice to their God, the gods of Baal, not the one true God. And so what ended up happening is the Israelites ended up bowing down to the gods of the land because they got involved with the people of the land. And when they did that, the enemy didn't have to curse the Israelites. The Israelites got themselves out from under the covering of God. And when they got out from under the covering of God, then the enemy could have his way with them. You hear what I'm saying? And so that's what ends up happening many times. The enemy's not stupid. 
He'll try to convince you that he has power over you. But if you have any understanding of God's word, you get to a place where you realize that he's a liar, he's the father of lies, and he's trying to move me and sway me, sway me by a lie. So if he can't do that, then what he will switch to and revert to is trying to get you to accepting a worldly way of living. And when you begin to compromise by living worldly, then what begins to happen is you move yourself out from under the covering of God. And when you move yourself out from under the covering of God, then the enemy can have his way in your life. Am I making sense to you? So the Israelites had placed themselves under a curse by taking the bait set for them and were suffering the consequences of their sin in bowing down to other gods, specifically the gods of the Moabites. Now, after rem remedying what had become a disastrous situation and finally defeating the people of Moab, which, by the way, required a lot of repentance getting things in order, and then recognizing who God was, getting back in line with God, then they could go against the enemy and defeat the enemy. You cannot defeat the enemy in your own strength. It's only God in you that has the power to defeat the enemy. My privilege is to be in right relationship with God. Walking with God is how I have victory. It's in His name, in His authority. And you don't just carry his name and his authority because you said a prayer. You have to hear the word of God and do the word of God. You've got to live it. There's a lot of Christians that go to church that have said a prayer, a confession of I'm not in right relationship with God. And they say, okay, give me my insurance policy that says when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. But when they leave here, they don't live right. They don't live in conformity with this word. They don't want to know what this word says because they just want to get to heaven and they don't really care. As long as they get, you know, they say the prayer, they're going to get to heaven no matter what. But the reality is they're not living the life that Jesus called them to live. Jesus never really presented, hey, you need to follow after me so you can get to heaven. He basically said, he that would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. His end goal was, yes, that you would spend eternity in heaven with the Lord, but that was not really the priority. The priority was that as people of God, we would live in right relationship with God and bring the kingdom of God to bear in our lives and in this planet. And the reason that we've been ineffective as a church is because we've been living life like the world, hoping that when we die we're going to go to heaven, not realizing that, that's, that the enemy is perfectly fine with that. He's perfectly fine with you being ineffective in this world and you going somewhere down the road in the long run, spending time with God. He's perfectly fine with that because in the meantime, you are idle, you're apathetic, you're ineffective. And Jesus didn't say, when you pray, pray that you'll make it to heaven. He said, when you pray, pray this way. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
I want to see a change in my life. It's not going to happen just by simply hoping to get to heaven one day. It's going to happen when you learn the Word of God and you have faith in the Word of God and you live the Word of God by walking it out. That's the way you're going to live an overcoming, victorious Christian life. I'm not saying a life without battles because the Christian life is a fight. Paul says, I fought the good fight. Right? What kind of fight is it? It's a good fight of faith. And I want to tell you something. As a Christian, but also with one that has been given responsibility or oversight or leadership in the church, things don't get easier, they get harder. Whatever you go through as a Christian, those that are in leadership go through it a lot more. Because the enemy understands the principle, if you can take out the leader then you can take out all those that are following the leader, right? So what we're trying to say is that as you grow in God and as you're used by God, don't think that the fight becomes less. The fight is actually greater. But people say, hey, uh, 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 new level, new devil, but the reality is new, devil, uh, new level, new upgrade with God. Listen, if, you, <laughs> if you're covered as a Christian... Uh, well, let's just say, if you're covered, uh, uh, you know, you, work, you begin to work with government, you're going to have levels of security in keeping with the responsibility that you have. Yeah. But the, you're going to have to learn how to work with that level of protection as well. Yeah. You can't let the enemy in. You can't be sleeping with a spy and think that you're going to be okay like some people in our government have done. Um, there's, another, there's, <laughs> there's another video that's going to get struck. Okay. That's all right. You can't sleep with the enemy and think it's not going to affect you. You can't partner with the enemy and think it's not going to affect you. Now, I'm getting off on a rabbit trail, but I'll get back here. What I'm trying to get you to realize is that if the enemy can't push you out, he will lure you out. That's what he did with Eve and Adam. That's why it was called a temptation. And the enemy wants to tempt you, but he tempts you with lies. One of the biggest lies today is you can be a Christian and not necessarily do what God says in His Word. This is the Word of God. What God says is true whether or not we come into agreement with it or not. And it's a sword that can be used against an enemy, but if we, don't, if we partner with the enemy, it's a sword that oftentimes is used against us. But not because God wants to, it's because we partnered with the enemy. So we've got to learn how to live the Christian life, not just by going to church. There's a lot of Christians to say that today that says, I don't have to be a Christian and go to church. But see, what you're doing is you're taking the Word of God and you're saying, I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that. Right? But who's God whenever you go in there and you start marking stuff out and saying, I don't have to do that. Who's really playing the role of God? We are. And when we're playing the role of God, guess what? God no longer is God in our life, and we're bowing down to an enemy. Maybe it's a little bit too much for you. All right? Listen, I'm not concerned uh, uh, with so much having a bigger church. We're going to have a bigger church. We're already growing. But what good is it to have a bigger church if we're in an ineffective church? 
What I'm interested is that Jesus, who lives inside of you, grows. And you become all that God intended for you to be. And then you can look back on your life. And I mean, just since y'all were talking about me, I might as well keep going with the thing. You can look back on your life and was there, was there a lot of difficulties? Was my marriage easy? No. Was raising a family easy? No. Financially, were things easy? No. Was ministry easy? No. In fact, I was out of ministry for three and a half years because of stuff that I did. Right? Not because I wanted to be. It just happened. So here's the key, though. If you continue to remain steadfast in the sense that I'm not going to quit and let God work in your life, he can bring things around, deal with the stuff in your life. And actually, what the enemy meant for bad, he can use that and actually bring you to a better place. Not because you're good, but because he's good. Are you hearing what I'm saying? No, I haven't done everything right in my life. But if I look back on my life and see what God has done, I can still look back and see even in my frailties, my weaknesses, my insecurities, the things that I've done wrong, God was still able to use me. And I can look back. And I was thinking about what Anna was talking about. See, my dad is in heaven now. My mom is in heaven now. My brother's in heaven now. My other brother's not doing too good, but I have a promise from God. He spoke to me one day. I don't know why. Maybe I needed it, but he told me, your brother's going to go to heaven. And so I don't pray with the idea that my brother's not going to go to heaven. I pray with the idea, I already know what God told me. I know what's going to happen, but I want him to live a good life on this earth, not just get to heaven one day. All right? I have people that I know, people that my my, my brothers and my sisters knew, people in my, mo my mother's family, people in my father's family have come to know the Lord. Why? Because I'm so good? No, because God is so good. But one thing that I didn't do, and, I didn't, and I'm not taking credit for this because there were times when I wanted to, but God came and, 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 and you know, the, that, that poem, Footprints, you know, where, you know, I said, why did you leave me, God? And, you know, you look back and there's only one set of footprints and you realize he didn't leave you at all. He was carrying you through those times. So even then when I say, and one thing I didn't do was I didn't quit, it's not because I didn't want to. but he wouldn't let me quit. And there have been a lot of times when I wanted to quit. Bitter, angry, confused. There is an enemy, right? But God's bigger. And I guess what I'm, I, I, we're going to get to here at the end is don't be confused with what it is to serve God and who God is. Don't keep be confused with the Christian life. The Christian life is a fight. And you're going to go through some disappointments. And you're going to go through some difficulties. But if you will persevere and seek to live a life that is pleasing to God, don't deny His Word. Take this Word. Listen, it's not my message. It's the Word. I always tell you, the word is the judge. If my message, I seek to be faithful to this word, but if my message is not faithful to the word, you discard my message and you keep the word. And let the word of God guide you. Live it. This word will guide you successfully and prosper you in life. I'm not talking about having lots of money. It might. 
But that's not the goal. The goal in life is not to have a lot of money. The goal in life is to advance the kingdom of God. In your family, in your life, in your family. How would you like to look back one day and look at a, at, a, at a home that was riddled with sin, riddled with witchcraft, riddled with the ways of the world, and look back one day and recognize that God came in and the light began to shine, and now a family that once lived for darkness is now living for light. And you can look forward to going to be with the Lord knowing that God is faithful. And what God has promised, He will do. Knowing that God can change not just your present, but change your future. Knowing that the prayers that I pray now are going to linger on into the future of my descendants that come after me. Why? Because God was faithful to David, not just in his present, but also in his future. And God is faithful to us, not just in our present, but also into our future. Because to the prayers that we pray, they don't just end when we die. They continue until God says, I'm ready. And he's faithful to answer prayers if it's in keeping with his word. Anyway, let me see. I'm, I'm really going down rabbit trails this morning. So... Let me see if I can get back. So after remedying what had been a disastrous situation, defeating the people of Moab, the army brought back with them some of the captives of the land. And upon confronting them, Moses said to the leaders of the military, Have you let all the women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known man by lying with him. Now please don't get confused with what took place under the, the law and how things work today. But we learn things from what happened back then. You see, the problem was not just the, that, that the physical, the problem was not just uh, with the people. Uh, the greater problem, uh, also, let me say it this way. The problem was not just with the idol itself that they bowed down to. The real problem was that the idols were in the hearts of the people. And while you can easily tear down a physical structure dedicated to an idol, tearing down the worship of these false gods was a much deeper problem. Jesus revealed the real problem when he was rebuking the Pharisees for seeking to reprove his disciples for eating food with unwashed hands. In Matthew 15, 18 through 19, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. You see, Jesus would deal with the real, real problem through his work on the cross of Calvary. The only way to really overcome the idols in the hearts of people was to kill the person. What kind of church is this? Wait a minute. See, I got this in here too. We're talking spiritually, not literally. Metaphorically. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, obviously he's alive. He didn't go to a cross, at least not at this point in his life. When he died, he would. But he had, no, when he died, he got his head shot off. It's Peter that went to a cross. But Paul is saying, I've been crucified with Christ. It's metaphorical. But it's a reality. It's a spiritual reality. It is no longer I, self, who lives, but Christ who lives in me. See, I died to my old man. I died to my old way of life. 
And it wasn't just, I went to AA and I made a pledge. No, physically, spiritually, I gave my life to God. And spiritually, my old man was put to death at the cross of Calvary. And I resurrected a new man because the Spirit of God now comes and dwells inside of me. And he says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Anyway, getting back to our text in Judges, what we see is that the Israelites didn't follow God's instructions and they let this man go. You see, some of us want to keep the old man hanging around. We think we can make a partnership with the old man. And if we make a partnership with the old man, things will go good. I don't have to give up this. I don't have to give up that in order to be a Christian. I don't have to, I don't have to uh, take a stand at work and maybe lose my job in order to be a Christian. I don't have to be politically, uh, uh, bring my uh, uh, biblical uh, uh morals and, and, and into my political walk in order to be a Christian. I can say I belong to a certain church and I'm a Christian, but at the same time with the other cheek, I can say it's okay to murder children. Wait, wait, that's a harsh statement to say murder children. Isn't that what abortion is? How can you say you're a Christian? And vow, you know, and, and, and vow that you're living a life for God and take a political stance that actually gives justification to something that God would never justify. And as Christians, how can we live a life, and I'm meddling again, how can we live a life and saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a born-again Christian, I live for God, and vote for people that justify abortion? That legitimize sin. Well, I'm a Democrat. I've always been a Democrat. This is not about Democrat or, or Republican because we also know there are Republicans that live like the devil as well. It's about living the Christian life in a way that actually bleeds into your everyday life. Bleeds into who you, how you talk, how you live, how you walk, how you vote, what you do. What was the result of their actions? Judges 126. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built the city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. So we see that this man that they made a partnership with, the old man, went out and rebuilt the city that he came from. My life hasn't changed. Why has your life not changed? Because that old man that was supposed to be crucified, when you gave your life to the Lord, you let live. And now you're more miserable than when before you became a Christian because now you feel bad about it. Before you became a Christian, you didn't feel bad about it. If you did, it didn't take long for a couple of six-packs to sear your conscience. I wasn't always a Christian. But now that you're a Christian, and you try to go back and do these things that you used to do, not only is it miserable, not only do you find it has 
uh, tremendous repercussions in your life and it continues on, but you also feel bad about it. This man went out and once again rebuilt the city that he came from. By the way, the name of the city reveals a great deal. The word luz in the Hebrew means to turn aside, to turn away, to deviate. It means crookedness. And I don't have it in there, but I guess it could mean perverseness as well. You know what perversion is? It's the wrong version. You know what Christians are trying to do? They're trying to justify why perversion is okay with God. It still gets my goat every time when people say, can I do this and be a Christian? That's a legitimate question. There's nothing wrong with question. It's what's behind the question. What's behind the question is, what is the least I can do and still be a Christian? And Jesus never said, this is the least you have to do in order to be a disciple. He said, if you want to meet my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross. And you know what the cross is? To us, it's a, it's a, it's a symbol of victory. But the, to the Romans, it was a symbol of death. The victory was that Jesus overcame death. But to us, it's still a symbol of death. It, when you make a choice... You're not just saying yes to something, you're also saying no to other things. Do you not understand that? I'm not talking to anybody here, I'm talking to people up there on the camera. Do we understand that when you make a choice for a certain career field, you are also choosing not to pursue other career fields? When you take a choice for a certain job, you are also choosing not to take other jobs? Do we not understand that? Do we not understand that when we become a Christian, we can't live as a Christian and do other things that are like non-Christians as well? we either all in or we're not. So we see that the real stronghold of the enemy is in the heart. And by not putting the old man to death, the enemy continued his work in the Israelites' promised land, albeit in a different location. If you don't cast the enemy out of your life, let me say it this way. Have any of y'all ever known somebody that was battling with smoking? Right? Yeah, almost everybody here can raise your hand. Have you ever noticed that when they quit smoking, they gain weight? There's nothing wrong with gaining weight. I'm, I'm, it's not healthy for you, but I'm not trying to, trying to say that's, a, that's a, a, a terrible thing. What I'm saying is that the real problem was not dealt with. What they did is they traded one vice for another. But the real problem was not dealt with. So the city the Israelites took was taken care of. But this man went and built another city. It looked, it was in a different location, but it was the same route. Are you hearing what I'm saying? You ever heard this? It's one thing to get the Israelites out of Egypt. It's another thing to get Egypt out of the Israelites. The goal is 
not just to get you into the church. The goal is to get Christ in you, and as Christ begins to grow in your life, it pushes out the world that also wants to have a hold on you. John 10 and 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you may have life and life more abundantly, but the only way that you can experience that life is when you stop partnering with the enemy. Now, I'm not talking to just the, the lost. I'm talking to the church as well. Michael Maiden in the, in the book called Turn the World Upside Down says this, there's no such thing as a spiritual vacuum. When Christians yield their places of authority and influence, the enemy rushes in to fill the void. The spiritual law is any ground you don't take, you lose. Why is all this stuff happening in culture today? Because Christians have adopted some kind of teaching or mentality that says we don't involve with the world even though it's totally opposite to what Jesus said in John 17. He said don't be of the world. In other words, don't be worldly. But he didn't say stay away from the world. He actually sent his disciples into the world. But somehow we've reversed everything and we say it's okay to not be uh, in the world. We hide out in our churches but we also bring the world with us. Totally turned everything around. The church has mistakenly measured its success by the wrong things. Size of a congregation, money in the offerings, buildings, even the presence of the glory of God in services. These are all good things, but they're not the right measuring stick. The measure of the church's accomplishment is its success in transforming communities and nations. God measures the success of a pastor's ministry not by the size of his church, but by whether lives are being changed and transformed. God uses the same measure for each Christian and for each family. He is looking to see if we are changing and transforming our world from the places of influence he has purposed for us to take. So in conclusion, the Old Testament accounts were given to us for an example. What we learn from this today is that it's not enough to simply have a big church with a big presence in a city. It's dealing with the internal problems of the heart that are really key to bringing the kingdom to bear in the land. That's why the Word of God has to be our standard against the influences of the world in which we live. We are to learn it, live it, and in so doing, bring God's kingdom to bear in the world where we live. We are to influence the world. God, give us some more Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are unafraid to die in standing for God to such an extent that when they're tried because of it, the glory of God makes itself known in their lives. Oh, I don't want to take a stand for God. I don't want to take a stand for truth. I don't want to, because I might lose friends on Facebook. I might lose influence in this particular, who cares? What I care is, what is God going to say when I stand in His presence? Is He going to say, well done, good and faithful servant? That's what I live for. I can promise you that my name is not good with everybody because if you stand for truth, it's going to be good with some people and not good with others. 
If you're living to have a good name, you're in trouble. If you're living for a good reputation, you're in trouble because the enemy knows how to soil your reputation whether you did anything wrong or not. You've got to learn how to live for God and keep your eyes on God and be more concerned with what does God think about me. Again, that passage in John 17. I did not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep from them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as not I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We must be willing to deal with the enemy strongholds that plague not just society, but the church itself. It's not the world outside that's the problem, but worldliness in the church, in the hearts of the people of God. Romans 12 and 2 says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you, by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now this is to Christians, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6. It's not for society, it's for Christians. Talking to the Christian church. He said in 2 Corinthians 10, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and philosophies, another translation says, ways of thinking, every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought, every philosophy, every way of thinking captive to the obedience of Christ, being ready to deal with every manner of disobedience when your obedience is complete. In other words, no compromise. I didn't say no mistakes. We're not perfect people. We make mistakes. We're going to make mistakes. That's not the point. The point is, where is your heart? Right? Where is your heart? I want to live for God. I want to do what's right. When I make a mistake, God is faithful. He forgives. He's merciful. We all make mistakes. But we want to strive to live a good life, a holy life. Holiness is not a bad word. It is a biblical word. Amen? And holiness does not mean that I got to put my hair in a bun and I can't wear, uh, 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 you know, I can't wear pants. That's not what holiness means. It's not a product of what's on the outside. It's a product of what's on the inside. But I will tell you that whenever you get this, what is right on the inside, it will affect what you do on the outside. Okay. We destroy arguments, every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Proverbs twenty-one and twenty-two, and we're finishing with this. A wise man scales the city of the mighty. When it's talking about the mighty, it's not talking about the mighty for Christ. It's talking about the strongholds in the land, the cities that have been built uh, uh, and, and protect the enemy's interests. A wise man, a wise church scales the city of the mighty. In other words, it doesn't run away from, it goes after it. And brings down the stronghold in which they trust. We're not going to just try to sugarcoat your way of life. We're going to try to present. I'm not going after your way of life. The goal is we want to teach the truth. But we can't be afraid of losing our status on Facebook. We can't be afraid of getting struck on YouTube. We can't be afraid of what the government or people in the community or anybody else is going to say. We have to stand on this. And this will bring down any philosophies, any arguments, any uh, strongholds that the enemy wants to remain in the land. It will deal with it. 
but we're going to have to remain firm. We're going to have to live it. And if we do, just like Bobby said when he came up here and was sharing what he said, if we do, you're going to see the glory of God manifest in a greater way than you've ever imagined. And people like moths to a flame will run to the presence of God.